0: Hello, and welcome to another podcast of Redemption Tempe. My name's Greg. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, I am excited about this week. Right now, I'm joined by AC and Jim. Hey, guys. Good How's to see going? you, too.
1: How's it going? Good,
0: good. Um, I'll let you guys kind of do a bit of the talking here in this intro, but quick note. This week, we're deviating a little bit from our uh, the sermon that you guys heard this morning uh, or this evening in... in services. Um, And we're going to be hearing an interview that Jim did with Andy Crouch instead. So first of all, Jim, uh, for those listening, if you don't know who Andy Crouch is, could you give us sort of the elevator pitch of, of who this awesome guy is?
1: He is one of the people who is thinking most deeply about faith and culture, in particular things like technology, power, you know, disability, like all sorts of future oriented things. And right now he is working with a real deliberate focus on the questions of how do we steward and engage technology in this, you know, screen-saturated world that we're in? He's written a book called The Tech-Wise Family, which actually has wisdom for not just families but for anybody who's finding themselves uh, surrounded by technology that's just kind of drawing them in and saying, "What does it look like to faithfully love God, love our neighbors, live in the way that God made us?" In, in a world like this that we live in,
0: yeah, I have been a fan of Andy Crouch. He's written a, a number of books now, and he has a way of writing that is approachable but also paradigm shifting. I mean, mm-hmm. there are things. It's similar, actually. What I appreciate about you, appreciate about you Jim, uh, mm. is there there's a creativity in thinking that is outside of the box, but it's not just for the sake of being outside of the box. It's really thoughtful uh, and intentional. So um, I'm excited about this interview that that you were able to have with him. Let me ask. Uh, you guys, this, if you could only recommend one of Andy Crouch's books, which one would you recommend?
1: What would you say, AC? Uh, well, I've only read one. So <laughs> Easy The tech family. Yeah, yeah. yeah. okay. <laughs> I would say, well, and I kind of get into this in the interview, that every single one of his books that he's written has preceded a major paradigm shift in my life. Yeah. But if there's one, I would say it would be the book Strong and Weak, which if nothing else, will if the world understood that book, they would see my daughter who's on the autism spectrum a little more in the way that God sees her, I think.
0: He has done a lot of really good books, but that was actually gonna be the one that I said too. That is was that, right? a, that was a paradigm shifting book for me. Culture making is a great one as well. Totally. But if I could only pick one book, I, I probably would pick strongly weak. And it's small. It's an easy read. It's really quick. That's right. Um so for both of you guys, tell us a little bit frame this interview since it's going to be a little off of what our sermon was on today. Um tell us what to kind of expect in in what we're talking about.
1: Yeah. Well, I would say a few things to to look for is I'm asking him questions primarily about how we steward and engage technology. What are the spiritual disciplines and rhythms that we need in this world to make Jesus uh, our Lord and not be lorded by the glowing rectangles, which can shape our life? And you can tell that he is not a a Luddite. He's not anti-technology. But what he is, is he's really got a, a vision of life that's centered on bearing God image and using these screens these devices as tools like they're made to be not appendages uh, that attach to our bodies so uh or as an extension of our bodies one, th- one thing to really look for is that he actually goes into some broader speculation about what the future might look like when it comes to technology and some things that we should be thinking about with some of these broader questions of like artificial intelligence and automation and things like that. So it's not just about phones. He mm-hmm. gets into some reflection on technology as a whole.
0: AC, anything that, that stood out? Um you were you've been a part intimately involved in the editing process of this and and you know, a part of the interview. Anything that stood out for you?
1: Yeah, the biggest thing that stood out to me was his hopefulness in talking about technology. Um I think a lot of times when I have conversations about technology, it's almost like the movie No Country for Old Men, um and the whole theme of like the new generation of criminal is like so like beyond the categories that the law enforcement officer who's the protagonist has that he has like when he looks at the future, it's like grim, it's confusing. There's no country for old men, there's no place for him anymore. And a lot of times when we talk about technology, it's almost like that same sense of pessimism and doom and gloom, but he has a real hopeful vision yeah. for the future with technology.
0: That's great. Well uh let's go ahead and jump into the interview and we will uh you can hear that now.
1: So I'm here with Andy Crouch, someone whom I have wanted to interview for a long time. When we first conceived of this podcast, he was one of the first names we wrote down. And uh, there are many things I could say about why I want to interview him. But just to highlight one of those things is that I was once asked the question if I could have a meal with any two people in the world and have it anywhere. I th- My answer was it was George Washington Carver and Andy Crouch in, in, in Fez, Morocco. So we're not in Fez and we don't have George Washington Carver, but this gets as close as I can imagine.
2: That's pretty amazing. I was hoping you were going to say Italy, but I'll go to Morocco. That's fine. If, especially if I could meet George Washington Carver, that would be amazing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Have have you been to Morocco? Uh, Never. No. Oh, well, it will convert you. It'll put, Uh, it'll put, italy lower on the list Ah, i'm convinced all right all right so andy it's good to have you on this (laughs) podcast (laughs) um (laughs) could you uh launch in and just give us a a snapshot the short bio of yourself
2: oh man uh yeah i live in outside of philadelphia pennsylvania um my wife teaches at a college there and we live in her hometown actually so we're right in the midst of her family story grew up in boston uh Many things happened in between, but now I'm partner for theology and culture at Praxis, which works with entrepreneurs who want to make their entrepreneurship redemptive and creative in the world.
1: Incredible. Well, well, I like to ask these kind of playful hypothetical (laughs) questions here. Um, And so I want you to imagine for a moment that for some strange reason, maybe politicians don't like to read as much, they make a law that says there can only be one chapter books so every book has to be reduced <laughs> okay, right. to one chapter I, so which I chapter we're pretty would much you choose already to there. preserve it one
2: <laughs> it's not a it's not a law but it's like yeah. the reality is so yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah yeah Yeah. Uh, <laughs> right it's so, Ooh,
2: it's so hard so which i can one? get it, i can easily get it down to two well i don't know
1: uh, okay let's start there yeah, let's say two. There was an <laughs> amendment, they had some uh, debate and they allowed I think there for are two, two
2: things that if I could if I could persuade every um everyone with a home in America and everyone who has a space of their own, uh whether you you know part of the problem with this book it's called the Techwise family, so people think it's just for parents with children, which is not at all how, what I hope it's for, although I do want to serve those folks. Anyway, so anybody who has a home, um, I would, uh, it's the, it's the chapter about space and the chapter about time. So the chapter about space, um, Hmm. basically says uh, each chapter of the book is built around one commitment you could make. And the basic commitment of that chapter is rearrange your home to put the, to, to put the devices at the edges and put, things and activities that totally fully engage you in a way that a device never will at the center of your home. And the easiest way to think about this and mm. I don't mean to fixate on on this one particular thing, but it it is kind of the question of where's the TV? And when the TV is is literally the center of of the living space and and all the chairs are arranged to it, we we're kind of setting ourselves up to say our, our the most important thing in our life is mediated entertainment and in our family for a long time we didn't have a tv but we eventually got one because i i love watching movies in particular and um but it went in the basement and the basement is a perfectly comfortable space in our house but it's not the center and when you walk into the center of our home we've actually arranged it so mm. you would have a hard time if you were really perceptive you could spot a couple little device like things like we have a a Nest thermostat, you know, and that kind of thing, but really, what you see is a space that's designed for people to actively engage. so I would want that chapter in because w- what I've heard from readers is that is that making a few decisions about the space we live in like because then every day after you come into a different space has been just revolutionary and it's so cool to hear the stories about this so that would be Mm. one that I'd keep. And then if I am given two, I I think if I were only given one, I would choose the time chapter, partly because it's biblical Mm. because it's about Sabbath. And if God said Sabbath mattered, I'd probably not want to cut that. But um, this is the principle of actually having a rhythm. I love the title of your your podcast, Faith, Work and Rest, right? So it's this rhythm of work and rest and this rhythm of on and off. Um, our Our devices are not designed to be turned off. I mean, they some of them don't even have switches, um, but they all do totally fine being on 24-7, but we don't do fine being on 24-7. So one hour a day,
1: mm-hmm.
2: one day a week, one week a year, actually for our family, it's two weeks a year. Everything that has a switch that we possibly can turn off, we turn off. And that is just, there. it's so weird because it's only like, it's one... I don't know if I'm awake, what am I awake? 16 hours a day. So one sixteenth of my day, one seventh of my week, one fiftieth of my year. Um, I, I turn everything off and you would think that probably isn't going to make that much of a difference because it's a very small percentage, but there's something about throwing that switch. Like, and I think of it as like a circuit breaker for idolatry. It just throws mm. the idol off, off its mm. pace because <laughs> All idols, like the whole way yeah, the idol yeah. is set up is to demand more and more from you, even as it delivers less and less to you. And there's something about when you say to whatever it is that is promising you security and significance, which is what idols always promise, you just say, I'm turning you off, you know. I, I don't work one day a week. I don't I don't look at my screen one uh one Central hour of the day in our family at dinner time, it like it defangs that thing for all the other hours and all the other days because you know you're in charge of it. It's not in charge of you. You know you can live without it because you have. So we do this around the dinner time, and and it's amazing what happens at dinner when there's not even the possibility of that distraction. You know, there's these really interesting studies that uh, Sherry Turkle writes about this in her book Reclaiming Conversation that if you're sitting around a table and even if there's just a phone on the table, uh, even if it's upside down, it changes the way the people around the table relate to each other. And then I think there's some evidence I'd have to Mm. track this down, but I think I've read that even having it in your pocket, in the room changes the way people relate. So Mm -hmm. to to have us have one hour a day where Mm. we just park it all, turn it all off. We plug them in, let them have their little dinner of electrons (laughs) while we have our dinner. And, uh, and it just says we can live without this thing, and so then when you pick it back up, it's a tool, not not the master of your life. So I would cho- I keep the space chapter, but I'd really keep the time, or really I'd think of it as the rhythm chapter, the the rhythm of Sabbath. That is how we were made to live, and is what distinguishes the true God from false gods. The true God uh, is not ever escalating his demands on us. And in fact, is just constantly pouring mm. out blessing on us, whereas an idol is just always, always wants more, always wants to take the next uh, the next step. And um, and that's that's enslavement. Right. And we need to uh, claim our freedom mm. <laughs> from all of this.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You use the word tool and yes. and uh, that yes. is was really helpful to our family uh, to not see these devices as a, an appendage, yeah. but uh, as a tool and um yeah and i think one of the ways that we started to do that and with in our home is we actually have this this cupboard uh where we put mm-hmm. all of the devices uh, at a certain time of the day and and uh we actually have a clipboard oh, where we nice. sign them in and and sh- yeah, yeah. cuz we're treating it like a tool uh and if someone if for some reason we needed it like uh yeah. we needed to figure huh. out some directions somewhere we sign it oh out, writing gosh, the purpose so good. for which we're using it, then sign it back in. Because what we <laughs> noticed is when we would <laughs> have to use it for yes. one small thing, it would just yes. stay the rest of the... Oh, you know? that's
2: amazing. I'm totally going to steal that and uh, recommend it to other people. And maybe we'll do it in our family, but it sounds kind of radical. So maybe I'll... <laughs> maybe I won't tell them about it.
1: <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love it. I love well, it. you know, <laughs> you know it's... it's um, it, it's actually been, it's been really, really nice. And then the other aspect of it yep. was with the nudge um, is we've uh, in that cupboard, we have a, a jar of chocolates. Oh, and when we put it. it in, everyone gets a chocolate uh, yes. to hit, hit at the senses a little bit. And then we... We sing a song that we made up about how we rest in the work of Jesus and we, yeah, we dance out of the room and (laughs) we just leave it there. And so, uh, so yeah, no, (laughs) but, but that was, that, that, that really Uh, flowed from, uh, reading tech wise, uh, and, uh, and, and working it out over time. Uh, yeah,
2: I love The combination of the chocolate and the song and the dance. Um, because part of what my next book is about is how thin the um, our, our technology. I think we could have made different choices, but the choices we made were to make our technology optimized for a very thin kind of existence. So even the fact that it's so visual, right? And mm-hmm. of course, for uh, visually impaired people, there's a, a Big uh, obstacle um, in how unnavigable the world becomes yeah. when it's so screen-based, and there are, you know, there's compensations for that and so forth. But, right. but just what that highlights is it's it's so much designed on sight and uh, very secondarily on hearing, but mm. nothing about taste, nothing about smell, and nothing about movement. Right, so we're all just totally inactive now mm. in front of these devices. And um, what it is to be a human being is to be this uh, combination of heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the language of the Shema Israel, the, the great commandment, love the Lord your God with all mm-hmm. your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And and the, the life that our devices invite us to is such a shadow of that. And when you taste something really Mm. sweet and you you make music and sing a song and experience the amazing things that happen when you make tuned sound which is you know what music is or part of what music is and then you're actually moving Mm. like you described dancing like all these things are basically things that technology Mm. has not given us Which, fascinatingly, it could have done. Like, we could have developed resources to meet the whole Mm. human person. Um, And and I think about the Nintendo Wii, which they don't make anymore. But, um, you know, that was like this one attempt to recognize that actually the users of video games are not just brains with very fast-moving fingers attached. (laughs) You know, but like you're meant to move, right? But mm-hmm. but you just think about how much of our time with these devices is so, so inert. And, and it's like, you're saying, no, no, now for the real life, you know, yes, this thing is a tool. Yes, we'll use it. It's helpful for certain things, but now we do the real thing, which is chocolate and song and dance. <laughs> so great.
1: Yeah. And, you know, my mentor oh, wow. in this has yeah. been my daughter, uh, Eliana, and, um, you know, uh-huh. being on the autism spectrum. Uh, what we've noticed is that formation has to come through the communication to the the whole person and all the senses, rather uh, than just trying to absolutely. rationally explain things. So in, in, rather than kind of giving a lecture on here's why we're doing this with technology and, uh, and whatnot, we, we have to engage the senses, the song, yeah. the celebration, and those sorts of things. And what, What she's really showed us is that this isn't an autism thing. This is a human Yeah, None of
2: that sounds at all uh, disordered. That sounds ordered. That sounds like what every human being needs.
1: Wow. Where do you hope innovation and development goes when it comes to technology? I mean, if you cast a little vision for that.
2: Yeah, I think we could make such different choices. Uh, so I would. Um, I, it's interesting. We had a. Uh, so I work for an organization called Praxis. We work with entrepreneurs at all at many stages. I mean, by definition, often they're at early stages. I suppose in the entrepreneurial stage. But we work with some folks who are very early, like really just conceptualizing. We call them our entrepreneurs in residence. And one of them this past year is um, a guy named Ben Shelf. He's a venture capitalist in his kind of day job, uh, and and Bill a big technology company a number of years ago. But his project actually was uh, to begin imagining, even on behalf of the investments that that he's able to make, um, investing in a very different kind of interaction mode. Um, so... I, I, don't, I hope I'm, I don't think I'm giving anything away that would be proprietary at this point to Ben because it, was, it really was just exploring why did we decide that glowing rectangles are the best way to communicate even with computational systems, right? What if you could um, one of the analogies Ben used was you know electricity now, is largely built into the walls and uh, functions relatively invisibly and in a way that doesn't interpose itself uh, or interfere over overly with our relationships with each other. Now, I will say that even electricity. So actually, at our dinner time, we all, most nights we turn out the lights, the electric lights, and we light candles. And and it's actually amazing what a difference that makes. So so I wouldn't say that electricity has totally ceased to interfere. Let's say. Uh, I mean, you think about the kind of conversation you have with someone in a room lit by really horrible fluorescent lights, <laughs> versus the kind you have like right at sunset or watching a sunset. Like you know technology, electricity does, or electric lighting at least, does interfere. Um, But still, it's moved to the background. It's not distracting us. It's not sort of um, actively subtracting from our experience, whereas what we're experiencing right now with the glowing rectangles is that uh, it commands your attention. It's actually designed to be so engaging. It's glowing, which is really significant because in all of human history, the only thing that has glowed that is generated it's emitted its own light is fire i mean the sun glows but you can't look at that directly and fireflies glow i guess but think about how mesmerizing fireflies are right because actually in all of our history we haven't had glowing things (laughs) um but although fire does, and think about how captivating a glowing fire is. Um, there's something about us that's drawn to that. Well, now we're surrounded by things that glow, and they are much more visually. I actually think there's some neurological basis for this, though. I don't know. I, I don't have evidence for this, but my hunch is that that over you know millennia we we uh, we adapted to realize when things are glowing, they're significant in some way. And so glowing things will hold my attention, even when there's another human being there who's not glowing. <laughs> so if there's a TV and you, and you're with me, but the TV's on, I, I cannot, I mean, I just cannot not watch that glowing screen. So one step would be to remove the glow. So reflective interfaces rather than transmittive. Another would be to, um, build it in much more subtly to our environment so that we get, you know, like you mentioned, like needing to check directions or, or, you know, find out the weather forecast or uh, whatever, put something on the calendar. What, what if that were much more backgrounded and didn't require you to divert your attention? So this would also probably involve some voice, uh, work with voice and, and, and then also, um, glance and uh all the ways i mean think about all the ways if we were together we're doing this recording remotely but if we were together my gestures i would raise my eyebrow or i'd look away or you know you would pick up in all kinds of very subtle ways you know that i wanted the conversation to go under hmm. a different direction or whatever in fact you may be raising your eyebrow like right now right now like saying please andy i asked that question no like 10 not minutes at all, ago, not at all. this is good <laughs> um so so technology that could pick up on on those cues would be awesome. Now, I don't know that I I don't know how far we'll be able to get in that because I actually think you get to a level where you're actually trying to design a human being. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That is, you're trying to make a computer that acts like a human being, but actually I don't think there is a way to get a human being without actually making a human being. That is, I think we are such a complex neurological, physical, well, and and sold system that actually we're only going to be able to go so far with so-called AI, artificial intelligence. But the more that computing could meet us in the fullness of who we are, rather than requiring us to adapt to it, that would be a good thing. And the further in the background it could be. That would be a good thing. And I actually think we will move in this direction. And I think we will look back at the early 2000s and be like, why in the world did they have things flowing right. at them all the time? What a horrible yeah. way to live. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I, I think we'll figure out uh, over a century or so a better way um, that's less obtrusive to interact with the computational systems that are helpful to us in all kinds of ways.
1: Gamification. That's a big trend right now. And I was... I was curious about your thoughts on that. A lot of it's focused on good, healthy things that lead to the flourishing of the world like education, healthy eating, doing chores. Yes. Um but it really plays on the reward system of the brain and and just was curious about what you think about the role of gamification in the formation of persons. <laughs>
2: Your chocolate is a little gamification in a way. Um, it's, a little, it's a reward. It activates a reward center um, for putting the device away. Boy, that it's complicated um, because the truth is that all learning um, – so learning is hard. That would be a very basic thing uh, to learn, and, and all of us ideally throughout our lives – are engaged in learning. And, uh, and that's, that's ideally, but the truth is many of us uh, stop learning in all kinds of ways, not just learning stuff, but like we stop learning what it is to be human, how to, how to relate to others, how to, how to navigate the world and the body we have when we're 50 or 80 versus the body we had when we were five or 15. Um, So, but learning is hard. Um, And so Uh, effective um, instruction, that is, effective development. And think of learning in the broadest sense, not just learning facts, but like learning how to be, (laughs) learning how to be effective. um, Well, the the word for it in a way from the Bible would be discipleship, right? Methadism. Greek for a disciple just means learner, like the the learners of Jesus has always been accompanied by uh, staged rewards. So it's it's always sequenced. That is, we don't ask you to uh, row uh, class five rapids the first time you get in a kayak. We have you do a class one maybe or just paddle around on a totally placid lake. Right. So it's sequenced. And there's rewards. There's these little intermediate ways that we communicate using all kinds of reinforcement that uh, you've you've made progress today, and so the hard work you did was worth it. I don't really object. Like, I mean, great teachers do this, right? Uh, it's very Poppins, right? When you turn the work into a game, you know, suddenly the job's a game, and and uh, in every job that is to be done, there's an element of fun. Uh, so far, so good. <laughs> I think what I worry about is we're getting too good at this. Namely, there are ways to hijack what is normally a mediated system. So when your teacher says to you at the end of a piano lesson, good job, Jimmy, you made progress today playing Mary Had a Little Lamb, and pats you on the back, right? There's all these mediating things that happen for you, even neurologically, to translate that ultimately into little dopamine things that move around and say, "Ooh, you know, that was good. Um, but. But what we're now able to do is bypass the mediation that happens through the body's sensorium, you could say, and either through visual things that can happen in playing Candy Crush or whatever, or of course, we're, I mean, we're quickly going to get beyond that and be able to jack right into your neurology, your, your nervous system, either chemically or electrically. And we are... I mean, it's the same th- reason that heroin is, I mean, heroin's highly pleasurable, <laughs> but heroin is also really distorting because unlike the things we're meant to ingest that give us pleasure, it is immediate, it's unmediated. And that makes it like way too powerful for the purpose that we can put it to. So what I'm worried about with gamification is not the idea of rewards for doing hard things. Um, it's that it might be that the rewards come too quickly. So, um, you know, your piano teacher only said, good job, Jimmy, after she'd put you through your paces, if she was a good teacher and, and made things really hard. Whereas I think a lot of gamification makes such small incremental things so easy and rewarding. They come too quickly. They're too intense. They're, they're, they're too immediate, like unmediated and, and the limit of this, of course, it will be literally systems that jack into our, our pleasure centers and, and treat us like little rats. Um, And I don't think, I think actually what you get from a well-designed, well-designed in quotes video game today is actually frighteningly close to what you would get, even if we could jack into your uh, pleasure centers directly. Uh, It's too good at rewarding you because the other side of learning (laughs) is realizing that sometimes it's hard without reward and it's still worth it like there's these two sides, right? You do need, you absolutely need the chocolate at a certain moment, (laughs) but also the Mm -hmm. the core thing you need to learn is that life is hard and life isn't always going to come Mm -hmm. with little rewards. And it's not a game. Uh, Another problem with the word game games are highly structured abstractions from real life Mm -hmm. where the Mm -hmm. rewards are simpler. The rules are simpler than a real life, but in real life, it's complicated. And in real life, it's hard. Mm. And in real life, the reward is sometimes—I mean—to use a theological word—eschatological. It's it's at the end of all things that the reward comes, and it's it's faith in that reward that sustains us and allows us to do absolutely crazy things, up to and including dying for what we believe in. Um, and there is no gamification that will get you uh, in a healthy way, at least to to that.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, there's not a gamification for martyrdom. That's for sure. <laughs> I
2: I think there's not now. Now there is a. There's idolatrous versions of that, so right. in a way, all military training is preparing you to is a gamified way of preparing you to sacrifice your oh, yeah. for a greater cause. Mm. Um, but uh, but that is done in the context of very profound calls to sacrifice. When it's done in a healthy way, uh, mm. it is not always done in a healthy way. And I just think gamification says you can have all the upside of learning without any of the actual cost. I, maybe that's the way of getting at what I'm most worried about. Um, it's And it's so it's not calling us to the deepest human thing, which is the willingness to do what is hard without reward because it's right, out of loyalty to something far deeper and bigger than myself and my pleasure centers.
1: Mm, yeah. Well, gamification is a trend. And I I feel like there's a a few other trends that are, we're coming upon them and they feel enormous. Things like artificial intelligence, automation, virtual reality, and we're kind of going down the path of these things as a society. And I wonder if you have (laughs) something that you would want to put in the in the knapsack of the, the listeners on how to navigate that, that journey? Like, what's some wisdom you want would want to give on how to process these big things that are questions that feels like we've never had to face before?
2: Yes. Yes, there is something. Um, and it's a mindset, which is that actually they are not going to fundamentally change what it is to be human. Huh. And that no matter to what degree these things succeed? Um, And I have some questions about, I mean, it's different for different things, Um, but certainly general AI, AI, the the idea that uh, computers are going to become like us in their range of abilities, their ability to interpret any given situation. I I actually think that's a dead end. I don't think it's gonna happen. And there is no evidence that we're getting any closer to it, by the way, Hmm. in spite of the great success of things called machine, that we now call machine learning or data data science or whatever. uh, but let's suppose that many of these things do come to pass. Hmm. What I would so what is believed is, then everything will be different. <laughs> hmm. Then we will have just radically new capabilities. We'll be in a new era for humanity, one way or another. Now, there's very optimistic versions of this. We will be like gods, or there's very pessimistic versions. We'll all become slaves, right? Um, but I, the thing I would want in our knapsack is actually the belief that, that what it is to be human has not changed the underlying structure of the cosmos, which is oriented towards the, the bringing into being of loving beings, which who are heart, soul, mind, strength creatures who love one another and love the creator of the cosmos, that that hasn't changed and, Mm -hmm. and that therefore we will not be intoxicated by the apparent promise of these things because we know a hundred we're basically a hundred years into the modern device story the the uh, the time when things started to work on their own for us so we lived for millennia in the tool era of human history in fact human history is coextensive with tools that is to say extensions of ourselves that nonetheless required us to be involved the device era is when we we create these things that operate on their own and and devices are things that work for you without you having to work and and do things for you with you without you having to be able to do them yourself yourself. So, you know, I, I'm not very good with a hammer, but wow, give me a nail gun and (laughs) Mm -hmm. I can get a lot of nails driven. Um, So the nail gun is closer to the device, but the ultimate thing would be the nail gun Roomba. That would be the robot that just nails for me, right? It roofs a whole, you know, does a whole roof in an afternoon while you just watch. Yeah. So anyway, um, we're a hundred years into this. And when we really assess like how much, I mean, we see all kinds of ways it's changed our lives and and we would say for the better in kind of logistical ways, but has it changed the fundamental drama of being human from our great grandparents who lived with basically none of these things? I would say very little. And in fact, so often we introduce these things into our lives and we think, oh, this is going to change everything. But then what's on the other side of that is disappointment. It's like, oh, well, I guess it's nice. I mean, it does, does this one thing. So mm. I think about, I, I think about the robot in my house, probably in yours that washes my dishes for me. Mm. I have a robot, like a highly sensitive, like uh, optimized robot that washes most of our family's dishes, but we don't call it a robot, right? It's a, it's a dishwasher. Right. Right. <laughs> and and uh, if you described that to my grand my great grandmother and said, there will be something you'll just Give it all the dishes and they'll come out sparkling clean and you won't have to do anything. She would have thought, oh, you know, I can't believe. It. And then, of course, many of our great grandmothers in particular spent a day a week on laundry, like literally like washing the clothes like mm-hmm. all day, one or one or two days a week. And you would say, no, no, it'll all just be done by machines. They would have thought they were going to be living in paradise. Hmm. Are we living in paradise?
1: we <laughs> are not living in paradise. We're not, yeah.
2: Are we fundamentally different? We're not fundamentally different. We just have a robot that washes our dishes. Like it's just (laughs) not it just doesn't make that much difference. And that's on a very small like household appliance scale. I actually think same thing for machine learning, same thing for self-driving cars. Now, I actually think. Uh, I don't think I'm going to live to see a self-driving car in the, in what people imagine, which is a car that just goes wherever you want it to, hmm. uh, in, in controlled systems on, on controlled highways, for example, for sh- sure, we'll have that. Um, but, uh, it's, I think it's a human level problem and and we can't make computers be like humans, but we're going to make lots of progress. Right. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but you know, cruise control seemed amazing mm-hmm. when it was, in- and, and now we, most of us have it in our cars. Are we like, Different people, no, no,
1: no I don't control. even know. Most people even use it, actually.
2: <laughs> oh, no, I love cruise control. You do? I, I use it on. I actually use it to as a discipline tool. Like I'm on a 25 mile hour street where I. Oh, nice. 35. I set it to 27.
1: Yeah, uh, <laughs> that's good. It,
2: do you, so this is, but but see, this is not how technology is talked about. It's talked about this thing that's going to be this step change in human history. Is going to totally change human history, and. And to go a little deep, and this is kind of part of the next book, where this comes from is uh, not science, which is, of course, at the root of modern technologies. We've figured out certain fundamental things about the way the world works. But this doesn't come from the science side. There's nothing in science that says, you know, implement these new devices and your existence will be different. This comes from the other side of the history of technology that we never talk about, which is alchemy. Hmm. And alchemy... Um, which, of course, we get the word chemistry from the same root as alchemy. Um, Alchemy was the search for the thing. It was called the philosopher's stone, this substance, that if you could get hold of it, you could turn any metal into gold and you would have eternal life. You'd be immortal. You'd never die. Hmm. And and that, of course, if we had ever found such a thing, if the philosopher's stone actually existed, uh, that would be a categorical transformation in human history. Hmm. It doesn't exist. It Hmm. never did exist. It's not meant for us. It wouldn't be good if we found it. Right.
1: Right. Right. Um,
2: And, and it will never happen no matter how dramatic, whether it's CRISPR gene editing or uh, automation or, you know, any of the other things that are, or the blockchain, although that's seems like that's passing even already, but Mm -hmm. uh, we will not be different. Hmm. But what will happen is we will want to believe we'll be different. And in the quest to achieve that transcendent leap, we will do great violence to oh. other people and hmm. ourselves in order to try to get that thing we thought we were after, which is a categorical change in humanity. And, and so the, it's it's not a neutral thing that we believe that, oh, on the other side of this singularity will be this new existence, because actually the quest for that new existence will drive literal violence and, and broader violation of human beings. Um, and, uh, I, I gave a talk about cyborgs recently and I said, look, we're already all cyborgs. We're all integrated to a very remarkable extent with computational systems. Um, once they get implanted in us, I mean, most people's phones are basically implanted now, like Hmm. it's not going to be that different. But what actually is going to happen is that in the quest for the kind of transcendence, we think that being a cyborg would promise we're actually going to use people as slaves <laughs> kind of literally mm. like think about how there's more slaves today than there have ever been in, in the whole history of humanity even while we have way more technology and more devices than we've ever had in history mm. like these are not unconnected phenomenon yeah so anyway sorry I, i'm going on too long here no, but no. In our knaps- what we want in our knapsack is a sober realization that nothing technology, technological is going to save us and nothing technological is going to damn us. Mm. <laughs> and instead, we are still on the other side of whatever technology is introduced in 20 years, whatever the next iPhone thing is, we're still going to be human beings, heart, soul, mind, strength, who are designed to love one another and God, and who also are in desperate need of, of transformation uh, from within the transformation of the heart rather than the transformation of our circumstances or our capacities or our capabilities. And that is what we've got to keep like at the center of our minds and imaginations.
1: You just used the word imagination and the most jarring phrase in the book for me was uh, the slavery of the imagination as a, a reason why we fully embrace and consume everything and just accept those things. Explain this slavery of the imagination, and what does emancipation from that slavery look like?
2: <laughs> well, hmm. I'll illustrate it. Um, well, you, you know, you asked a while ago what was surprising about writing. What was surprising is I discovered a spiritual discipline I desperately needed that didn't I didn't have and didn't know I needed until I was in the midst of the book. Um So let me describe it this way. I I realized as I was writing TechWise Family that while we did park our devices downstairs, we don't take them into our bedrooms. That's something I talk about in the book. That when I got up in the morning, I would come downstairs, I'd start my tea brewing. And before anything else, I would pick up my phone and uh, take it out of its charging cradle and open it up and see what outrage... (laughs) And what urgency and what horrible thing awaited my attention. And it, it just occurred to me one day, because I'm thinking of writing about it all the time, this cannot possibly be the best thing to do mm-hmm. with the first moments of my day, yeah. right? So I decided that uh, in the mornings I would make my tea because I'm not willing to give up that addiction or that, uh, <laughs> that pleasure reward for getting out of bed. Uh, but I'd take my tea and I'd go outside before I would look at a screen. So before I look at a screen, I'm going to get out of doors. And we live in a house where it's we have a front door. I can walk out the front door. I mean, I'm not in spectacular nature or anything. I'm just in a little town outside of Philadelphia. But I have to tell you, Jim, this is the most, it may reflect my, what a spiritual like <laughs> pygmy I am or something, but this has been the most transformative thing I've done in hmm. 10 years. Was deciding I'm going to start every day by stepping outside my door and I walk outside. And I do it, whatever the weather is. It can be snowing. It can be raining. It can be cold. It can be humid. Hmm. And I step outside, and I'm a creature in this vast world. And uh, during the dark months of the year, the stars are still out. The moon is whatever phase it is. I didn't even know what phase the moon was, you know, for years. I, I now know. I know what phase it is. And it has been just so amazing. And it'll sometimes it's like. Five seconds. Sometimes I stay out there for a while. It depends on the day, and the goal is just to be out there for mm-hmm. a moment. And and it's this multi sensory experience. I hear things that I don't hear inside my house. I sm- there's a, there's aromas, you know, of various kinds. There's um, the, my I'm focusing on the distance rather than near vision. And what happens to my imagination under these two conditions? Right, under one condition, my imagination gets shrunk to. A world that is customized for me. So it's notifications, the algorithms know I'll find titillating or exciting or disturbing or Mm. important. A world shrunk to what can be represented in pixels um, for the moment, at least in two dimensions right Mm. on the screen. Um, uh, A a world with very little bandwidth. I mean, even with gigabit internet service, like the bandwidth of what I get when I step outside my Mm. (laughs) door, in terms of like the bit rate, uh, information speaking, of what I'm absorbing through all my senses, the five canonical senses, but all these other senses I hardly even know I have, uh, is so much wider. Mm. And I just have to tell you that when I do that, I step outside, I both feel much smaller than I do when I check my phone. Like when I check my phone, I feel like I magically grow mm-hmm. in importance. <laughs> when I step outside without my phone, I feel like I shrink. I'm like, oh, there's stars up there. Yeah. <laughs> I'm tiny. And at the same time, I feel like I sort of take on my rightful mm-hmm. size in some mm-hmm. weird way. And. What has that done to my imagination? I can't say exactly, except I will say I feel so much more free. I've been doing this for about two years now. I am so much more free to imagine what my life ought to be. What should I do this day? What is it for me to do? How should I love the people I share my home with? How should I love my neighbors? Um, I just feel so much more free. And when I live my life by the device, I feel narrower and narrower and the range of options I can imagine gets smaller and Hmm,
1: smaller. That's beautiful. So I want to close with this one question. I'm, I'm going to take you into a hypothetical imaginary coffee shop. We're going to go and we're going to walk to a table where people have just finished reading TechWise Family and discussing it together. And I'm going to give you, I'm going to introduce you to some of the people at the table and their situation and struggle in life. And I was wondering if you could, rather than giving them the answer or the advice, if you could give them the question that they should continue to ponder as they process it. So I'll introduce you to Adam first. So Adam is uh, someone who would describe his work as toil. He doesn't have a lot of agency at his work, and he's yeah. not even certain that the, the the goods and services that they produce are even all that helpful to the world. But he has to work, and yeah. he's reali- he realizes that he much prefers leisure over rest because right. it helps yeah. him take his mind off the yeah. toil of the day. Of
2: course, of course,
1: and then real meaningful rest actually almost draws him in to the reality of life that he really wants to yeah, escape from. Yeah, what, yeah. what question would you give to him to continue to wrestle with and ponder?
2: I think I would encourage him to ask um, maybe as a beginning point for each day, is there a moment, a, even a moment today when I can help someone else be truly human? Mm. Um, even just one moment, uh, even if the work's not Mm. designed to do that, even if opportunities for interaction are limited, but is there some moment today where I can help someone else kind of feel their, their dignity, their valuedness, their, their smallness before God, their belovedness, whatever, all the things that go into truly human. Can can I watch for that today?
1: Hmm. That's good. That's really good. Okay, so let me introduce you to Eve. She's, she's sitting right next to him. She's worn out. She's a single mother. Uh, she has teenage children. And she loves everything written in the book. But she's grieved. She's so far into yeah, yeah, yeah. it that they've set the patterns of life. Yes. And plus, she, she's working multiple jobs. It's really hard for her to monitor all of yeah. this. And she feels like implementing everything would just be overwhelming. (laughs) Uh, What question would you have for her to ponder?
2: I would want her to go to her teenagers um, and not try to impose any rules or new patterns or break any addictions even, but just say something like, uh, can we take 10 minutes to talk about what you would like our family to be more like? And how how could we together make it more like that?
3: Hmm. So I'd
2: I'd get them on Hmm. her side. I'd want them on her side. And this is the great thing about teenagers: like they they, well, for one thing, they want to be on your side. I mean, they've got to be. Well, however they relate to her, deep down, they're grateful for her. For all her sacrifices for them, for all she's done for them, and they they want to love their mom and they want to be loved by their mom. But we we all get into patterns in our family life where we don't express that. So I'd want her to ask them to, in a way, take ownership of what do we want our family life to be like in in a small way. Let's not change everything. Let's not try to fix everything. But what could we do that would make this home more like what you would want it to be like?
1: Hmm. That's good. Well, Moses is sitting next to her and Moses, Moses, Adam, even Moses. Yeah. They, well, well, you know, if I use some of the more common names, these are actual conversations yeah, yeah, yeah. I have, so I, I don't, don't want to, you know, <laughs> to <go. laughs> yeah. Uh, no, but seriously. So Moses, he, he has uh, he's there, he's in a wheelchair. He has a uh, progressive ALS. And it's uh, he's needing technology more and more. And actually, when he's uh, most of his time at home, he his connection to um, his devices allow him to speak, allow him to communicate. And he's often alone. And this allows for him even through email, social media to have some degree yep. of connection. Yep, yep. But he's feeling a little convicted because technology is and screens are pervasive for him. What, yeah, of course. What uh, question would you give to him?
2: It's the hardest one, and I, I would say uh, I'm so glad I'm so glad he's alive because uh, and and we'll have the, the length of days that technology hmm. allows. I'm all for medical technology, by the way, <laughs> uh, and I'm all for connection via screens when other parts are not not other ways are not possible. Um, but the question, goodness, well. I, I think it would actually be the same hmm. as Adam's question, with within the reality of your life today. And I would phrase this on the timescale of today. We're not talking about the next ten years. Who knows what those bring? Uh, we're not talking about in general. We're talking about what's what's possible today. Hmm. Is there someone, either in person or via uh, mediation, via, via media, right, via social media or otherwise? who you could help uh, experience being truly human. Um, I would, that's, and, and if that's through uh, social media, go for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, though though I'd, want, I'd want attention to, you know, are there others? Um,
1: yeah, that's good. That's good. Mo- most people would be hesitant to put on someone who's has such challenges like that the invitation to serve others it wouldn't intuitively come
2: oh but that's what i mean my gosh that's what gives us our dignity uh partly i mean we have dignity whether we can do anything at all but um no 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 we're meant to i mean love is two ways (laughs) so of course there are many people who have to love moses uh and and he'll rely on them more and more as his condition progresses but um but he's, he's made to love and,
1: uh, yeah, yeah. I love that. That, That's really good. Final guy, Ted. Uh, he was, you know, (laughs) named after the Ted talks. Um, he, uh, he is someone who works for a software company that creates iPhone apps like candy crush. And he's, he's, he realizes that he plays a small part in the problem and he's asking questions of vocation of of what sort of what what sort of trajectory should he have vocationally to actually help people flourish through software technology those sorts of things what question would you give him to reflect on
2: yeah it would be something like how can i be part of building devices interactions interfaces I, uh, I'm not sure what the right word is, but building the technological apparatus to help people love with heart, soul, mind, and strength. Mm. Uh, that's obviously, that's a massive frame. And so you're only going to do a small part of it, but what's the part that my work could play at the various decision, you know, in the decision trees of how do we design UI UX and that kind of thing? Um how do, how do I make decisions that move people towards love, which is, you know, connection, vulnerability, service, well, lots of dimensions to that, uh, affection, uh, and, and towards heart, soul, mind, strength, unity, rather than peeling off one little part of us. Um, how could I, how could I respect the fullness of what it is to be human in the interactions that I design?
1: Hmm. That's good. And I think to some degree Uh, all of us could use all four of those questions in in some uh, way of framing those questions. So I really appreciate those. I appreciate your time and the very good work that you do. And uh, I really look forward to seeing what comes next. And so therefore I can anticipate whatever conundrum (laughs) comes next for me. So (laughs) I I really appreciate you, Andy. Thanks
2: for taking the time. so much, (laughs) Joe. This has been an amazing conversation. Thank
3: you. Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church Tempe podcast, where we believe that all of life is all for Jesus. Redemption is one church in nine local congregations across the state of Arizona. Our vision at Redemption Tempe is to create disciples of Jesus who seek the reconciliation and restoration of Tempe. We would love for you to join us at one of our Sunday services at 9 a.m., 11 a.m., and 6 p.m. each week. You can learn more about us and how to get plugged into the life of our church by downloading our phone app called Redemption Church Tempe. Or on our website at tempe.redemptionaz.com And lastly, we would love to hear from you Please send any questions or feedback you might have about this podcast Or our church by emailing tempe.redemptionaz.com Thank you for listening, and we'll catch you next week